If you're new with us today, this is a, a time when we open the Bible, we look into God's Word that we believe is uh, the direction for our lives, the direction uh, for what we believe and how we live. So I invite you today, we'll be looking into this book, a uh, little book in the New Testament of Philippians, and invite you as I lead us into that in a few moments uh, to share together with us that way. You know, when I was young, um, just, just out of high school, a little older than a little some of the, the teens here, but I was learning to share the gospel, uh, to share my faith with people. And so those I was involved with in my Christian life at that time, we would sometimes go into the city, the center of the city where I lived, and we would try to engage people in conversation about spiritual things so that we could uh, learn how to share our faith. One of the ways that we did that, we would tell catch them on the street and tell them we're taking a little survey, a spiritual survey, a religious survey, and we'd ask them some questions. And we wanted to get to know them a little bit. It wasn't really an official survey, but it was an opportunity for us to try to engage them in a spiritual conversation. And so we could also learn how to share our faith in Jesus with them. And one of the questions that we would ask them in our little survey was, do you consider yourself to be a religious person? Now, I don't know if anybody's ever asked you that question. I think it's an interesting question, so I'll ask you. Do you consider yourself to be a religious person? I always like the answers, and sometimes how they vary from young people, teenagers, uh, to middle-aged and to older people, that they can be categorized by how we answer. But really, there are really probably only three possible answers. Yes, no, or the always safe answer, it depends. It depends on what you mean by being religious. Well, and today as we continue our conversation about this little book of Philippians in the New Testament, we come to a section where the writer, who's the Apostle Paul, uh, he's trying to sort out that same issue. What does it mean to be religious? Is that a good thing? or not such a good thing. It's like Paul's been wrestling with that, and he wants us to engage with him in that discussion. So I want us to do that today, and to explore that as we discover how he dealt with the issue. And to do that, I invite you to go with me to chapter 3 of that little book in the New Testament. It's a letter that Paul wrote to one of his favorite churches, the church in Philippi, and the book is called Philippians. So if you have your New Testament, uh, either on your device or you have the physical uh, Bible te Testament with you, uh, Philippians is about halfway through the New Testament, if you're not real familiar with your Bible. Uh, you know, the Bible is divided into two parts, Old Testament, New Testament, and halfway through the New Testament, you'll find these little short books of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then uh, Colossians. So once you find Philippians, we recognize that uh, Paul wrote that letter to this church, and he was in a Roman prison when he wrote it. And so we've titled this series, Unchained Living, because that's exactly how he's living. Though he's chained on house arrest there in a prison in Rome, uh, Paul has determined to, to turn that prison into a pulpit, a pulpit that he can talk about Jesus from. And so he tells us that that has turned into the advancement of the gospel. And so Paul opens chapter 3 
with a, a theme that has characterized his entire letter in so far to this point. We see it in the opening verse, in, in verse 1. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. That's the theme. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Now, if I could summarize how Paul got to this point, I'd put it like this. It's as though he's saying, you know, I've learned uh, to enjoy most things in my life. And I've also learned to endure the things that I don't enjoy so that I can, above all else, live by rejoicing in Jesus. You see, Paul had, or Jesus had become the one constant in Paul's life. Jesus was the anchor of Paul's soul. And so whatever came his way, whether it be prison or the palace, Paul had been in both. Paul could say, my joy in life comes from Jesus, comes from celebrating him. I'm sure maybe many of you, like me, that's a place I want to get to in my life on a regular basis. Uh, Paul talks about being obsessed with Jesus. Jesus is all that matters to Paul. That means his circumstances didn't dictate the direction of his life or his attitudes. It means that his disappointments in life didn't derail his faith. Paul knew what rejoicing in Jesus was about. He knew that it was not dependent on his surroundings, his friends, his finances, uh, anything about his power, his position. Paul know that, knew that none of those had anything to do with learning how to rejoice in the Lord through it all. And quite honestly, uh, I find that sometimes easier to say than to do, isn't it? And I'm glad that Paul understood that challenge. There are things that can stand in our way of living as rejoicing in Jesus. How do I know that? Well, because I live the same life you do in this world. And because Paul indicates that as he continues. He tells us in a, a bold statement about following Jesus, and then he follows it up with a warning about a threat to following Jesus. We see that in verse 2. He says, now watch out for those dogs those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Well, I'll tell you, reading those words is a lot easier than understanding them. <laughs> what's, what's Paul talking about? What does he mean, watch out for the dogs? Well, I'm glad you asked, because <laughs> it may help us as we continue to see what he says about that. Uh, whom he's referring to as these dogs. And so he amplifies that. Watch out for the dogs, those who do evil, mutilators of the flesh. Well, that didn't help a lot, did it? Like, okay, who are they? Well, without going, getting too deep into all of this, let me just summarize who they are. It's really a group in the first century church that were known as the, the Judaizers. They were professing Christians, the Judaizers, who taught that in order to be right with God, a Gentile, most of us, must believe in Jesus and conform to some elements of the Mosaic law, especially circumcision. 
In other words, they took the Bible's clear teaching about salvation, the gospel, salvation by grace through faith, and they said, that's good, but let's add something to it. It's salvation by grace through faith, and then we'll add a few Jewish laws, particularly the Jewish rite of, of circumcision. And so they changed the gospel. They added to it. And Paul is saying, don't listen to these people. Stay away from them. Today we would call that the Judaizers. We would see them and call that as legalism in the church, which legalism is any system of rule keeping that's added to faith for achieving salvation, receiving it, and for spiritual growth. Now, the rules vary depending on which legalistic system you're under, but they can be rules like you have to go to a certain church or you have to attend church a certain number of times each week or you have to stay away from certain activities or certain beverages or you have to dress a certain way or you have to have a certain means of being baptized or you have to uh, read a certain number of chapters in the Bible or carry a certain kind of Bible. You see, the list of legalistic works is endless, but they all make the same mistake. They all make our right standing before God dependent upon our works, not just our faith. And Paul says that approach to religion is dangerous and has no place in the Christian life. And I know that some of you could tell your own story about that, how dangerous legalism is. Because perhaps that approach to Christianity drove you away from your faith for a while. You said, you know, I don't need that. I can't keep my own rules, much less a bunch of rules from the church or from my religion. And so thanks, but no thanks. I'm out of here. Or some of you have said, I can't do it. I can't get sucked into that because it's stolen my joy. Maybe you're there today. You said, I have no joy as a Christian because I'm just working hard to keep these rules. And Paul says, that's another gospel. That's changing the gospel. And to, to underscore how destructive and how useless legalism is, Paul says, let me tell you my story. He cites his own story as a prime example of how foolish legalism is. We see that in verse 4. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, he says, if somebody else thinks they have got a, a pretty good resume of rule keeping, let me tell you mine. And he goes on. He says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul says, if you want to talk about being religious, you lose. I had it mastered. He said, no one had a better resume of law-keeping than I did. Faultless, he said. I had the best good works resume of anybody in the synagogue. I had all the righteous works 
that I thought would earn God's favor over my life. Paul said, nobody competes with me. I keep the law better than anybody. And then, that led Paul to an important discovery, a life-changing discovery about what it means to live rejoicing in Jesus. He continues in verse 7, but, whenever you see that word but in the New Testament, stop and realize a change is coming. Paul said something changed, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What Paul's saying is that living this life of rejoicing in Jesus calls us to give up our own righteousness and our own good works status. And so rather than offering God all the good that we have done, we simply accept what he has freely given to us in the good works of his son, Jesus. Now, we could misunderstand that. We could say, well, so God's not interested in us being good? I thought that's what the Christian life was about. Well, God is interested in us being good. It's just that we can't be good to earn our righteousness. We can't be good enough. And so we must recognize that righteousness is not found in our works, but in our Savior's work. You see, for Paul, being religious used to be all about his righteousness his status, his rule-keeping, because that's what religion does. It tends to focus on what we can do for God, to earn his approval, to keep him from being disappointed in us, to, to keep him from, uh, to uh, allow him to love us more, or not love us less, at least, or trying to tip the scale so that at the very end of our lives, it'll just barely, we'll just sneak by because we have more good works then we do bad works. And we hope that that gets, lets us slip into heaven some way. And Paul says, I used to live like that. But he finally came to know the truth. As he says here, that all my righteousness, all my good works, my resume was just like garbage when it came to commending me to God. It didn't work. And so he says, we too, we can give up being religious, if that means trying to please God, to earn our salvation, to work our way into God's pleasure, we can give that up and simply accept by faith God's righteousness through Christ's work on the cross. And Paul summarized that when he was writing to another church, the Ephesian church, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He said this, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's still true today. 
God wants our good works, but he wants them in the right order. You see, our good works follow salvation as we work it out. Good works can't earn salvation. Good works are the evidence of salvation. I don't know about you, but that takes the pressure off of me. I don't have to become a follower of Jesus by something I do. It's not about what I've done. It's about what he's done, what Jesus did on the cross. He came to earth as the eternal son of God. He lived a sinless life. He gave his life and died on the cross to pay in my place, in your place, to pay the penalty of our sins. And then he offers that freedom, that forgiveness to us as a gift by his grace that we receive through simple faith. You've been given a gift. It's not a gift if you've earned it. It's not a gift if you had to work for it. It's only a gift if you receive it. And it's given freely by grace. And that's what he does. Jesus, having paid the, the penalty of our sins, a, a debt that we owed, but we couldn't pay, now we simply receive that forgiveness, that relationship, that eternal life. When we pray to Jesus and say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I need you in my life. I believe you're the son of God. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins and to come into my life and take control of my life from this day forward and to give me the gift of eternal life. That's it. That's faith. That's accepting him on the basis of what he has offered and the work he has done. You see, when we abandon our own righteousness and we accept his, then we know what it means and can learn what it means to rejoice in him. And we make a second discovery about rejoicing in Jesus as Paul goes to verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. When we live a life that's characterized by rejoicing in Jesus, we then are free to embrace Christ's power and to share in his sufferings. You know, many Christians I know and have known over the years seek to live the Christian life in their own strength and their own power. I'll tell you, if you're doing that, I guess I don't need to tell you because you know, that's not only difficult, that's impossible. Can't be done. You, you cannot live the life that Jesus calls us to and sets it upon us in your own power and your own strength. Paul says it can't be done. We do it through God's power, God's resurrection power, the power that rose Jesus, raised Jesus from the dead because it's a spiritual life that God gives us when we have faith in Christ. And you can't live a spiritual life physically. You have to live a spiritual life in the power of the Spirit. And that's the power that God puts within us through his presence of the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've got the power to live the Christian life the way God intended it to live. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, sorry, you're on your own. You've got to live it, whatever life, under your own power. But once you become a follower of Jesus, God says, I'm going to give you the power, my power, the resurrection power, to live that life. 
And the Holy Spirit's power is something we learn as Christians to tap into daily. Every day, every morning, I encourage you to start the day and say, God, this is your day. Spirit of God, I pray that you live that your life through me, that the life of Jesus is flushed out in my life today through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that the fruit of the Spirit begins to be borne out through your life, in your relationships, in your thought, in your work, in your commerce, everything about you. Say, Spirit of God, live that life out through me today. That's what the Bible means about being filled with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit. We don't start the Christian life under our own power. We don't live the Christian life under our own power. We live it. We do the living, but we live it through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a great promise, a great provision. And I, I wish, honestly, that I could end there with a stirring story and a closing prayer and say, we've got the power, let's go. But we can't because Paul doesn't end there. He offers us a disturbing statement before he ends because he said, not only the power of the resurrection do we want to know, but then he says, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. So did anyone ever tell you that if you follow Jesus and you live a life of rejoicing in Jesus, that at some point you're going to suffer for it? No? I don't blame them. Because that's not a very good marketing technique, is it, for the Christian life? Want to sign up to suffer? No thanks. And I wish that, quite frankly, Paul hadn't said that either. But he did. And the reason he did is because the Jesus he's rejoicing in said that very thing. Remember in Matthew 5.11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You see, the reality is that living a life of rejoicing in Jesus is also living a life of sharing in his sufferings. Living a life of one who, just like he was wounded, just like he was persecuted, that we will share in those. It's one of the ways that we become like him, as odd as it might seem. Because as Paul told his young friend and associate Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Just like we have his power, we share in his sufferings. And so as one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, put it in his book, God in the Dock, he said, if you want a religion that will make you feel really comfortable I certainly don't recommend Christianity. That's not the right one. There was a guy by the name of Richard Wormbrand you might be familiar with. He could give testi testimony to that. He was a Romanian pastor some decades ago who uh, shared uh, his life story, and part of it was about he would preach there in Romania that the gospel, Christianity, and communism were not compatible. Well, the communist regime back in those days in Romania, while the Iron Curtain was still up, they didn't approve of that. 
And so they arrested him, and they took this pastor, and they tried him, and they uh, sentenced him to five years in prison. And later he wrote about this experience of being in prison, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And he said, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. So a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching the gospel. So we accepted our jailer's terms. We preached Christ, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating. So everyone was happy. (laughs) Paul says that's it. If we're willing to embrace our sufferings as part of following Christ, as part of rejoicing in him, he says we'll be drawn closer to him than we could ever imagine. It's part of rejoicing in Jesus. So what do we do with that? What do we conclude now from Paul's admonition to live a life rejoicing in Jesus? I'd put it like this. I I think Paul's lessons for us is that our righteousness comes not from the works of our religion, but from the work of Christ on the cross. I'll tell you, I've known some really religious people whose good works uh, clearly eclipsed my own. But I also discovered that They knew nothing about a life of rejoicing in Jesus. Not because they didn't want to do that, but because they couldn't. And the reason they couldn't do that is because they were so focused on their own righteousness, they couldn't grasp the righteousness of Christ on their behalf. And maybe you've gotten caught up in that, the religion of legalism, self-righteousness. I think Paul would invite you to do what he did, to take all of that stuff and just throw it on the the garbage heap right along with his, the garbage heap of our own good works to earn salvation, to get rid of the burden. And it's a burden of trying to be good enough to earn God's pleasure, trying to add enough to the scale so that someday when it's put on the balance, we'll just sneak in to heaven because our goodness outweighed our badness. And simply exchange all of that, as Paul did, for a relationship with Christ by faith that's based upon his finished work on the cross, not our ongoing efforts of good works to earn his pleasure. Let's pray together. Oh, God, we are so thankful that you've taken that burden off of us. You've taken the baggage of trying to be good enough to have you like us, love us, not condemn us. You've taken that baggage and you've said just throw it on the garbage heap because I've already accomplished everything for you. And God, I pray across this room today, but maybe there are some here who say, you know, I'm still living under that. I didn't know I was free in Christ. I didn't know that God accomplished it all. I was still trying to earn God's favor, either as a follower of Jesus or someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, would you just take that and allow them to leave it here, to drop it off and not not depart today carrying that stuff, that legalism with them, but to live in the power and the freedom of the Holy Spirit 
to have boldness to take whatever comes and to share even in your sufferings to draw us closer to you today. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.